Well, because our sermon this morning is going to be a little more topical, I don't have one focal passage this morning to read, and so we will just go ahead and, and jump right into our, our sermon this morning. And uh, I know I mentioned already, but Pastor Ben and I are going to be working through the book of Philippians together in the weeks to come, and he has offered to help me in laying out the, the passages in sermon size pieces, which will help me with preparation time. Uh, however, that won't be happening for a few more weeks, and so he had suggested that I find something to fill in for five to six weeks. And Monday and Tuesday this week, I was struggling to know what to do. Do we start a small book, maybe some topical, standalone type sermons? And it suddenly dawned on me that, well, there are five particular doctrines that have been very controversial as of late and have been in many uh, conversations that we've had and, and uh, others are having. And so uh, prayerfully thinking that, well, this would be a great opportunity for us to work through some of these doctrines. You can hear me teach on them as I understand them and as I understand the scriptures to uh, talk about them and uh, be time for us to ask questions and engage in conversation about it. And so I know it might seem a little provocative, but the sermon series uh, over the next several weeks then is what in the world is Calvinism? What in the world is Calvinism? And you know, for many of us, I think especially as Canadians, it would seem when we find ourselves in the midst of conflict, there is always the temptation to just get rid of the what we think is the problem, or maybe we just don't want to talk about it and hope that it somehow simply goes away. But I pray that we uh, become a people who are willing to engage in difficult conversations, who are willing to dive into the scriptures and, and ask hard questions and, and enter into conflict seeking to know the truth of God's word. Now the struggle with labels uh, is that when we use them, we're never quite sure if our hearers are defining them the same way as we are. And so it, it, it creates this opportunity of miscommunication, of misunderstanding, of misrepresentation, and uh, can, can produce all kinds of struggle. And so that's a danger of using labels, but I think there is also the benefit that it can be a quick way of identifying someone's convictions, their understandings of specific doctrines very quickly, and that can be useful at times. Uh, you know, we might think of groups like um, the Mennonites, you know, and there's many different kinds of Mennonites, but they identify with a specific teacher, Menno Simons, and uh, with some of the doctrines and convictions that he had. We could think of the Wesleyans or the Methodists who would identify with uh, John Wesley and some of his convictions and doctrines. You know, we're meeting here this morning in a Lutheran um, building and uh, a, a body of believers that are uh, named after a reformer, Martin Luther, during who lived during the time of the Protestant Reformation. We could think of the Hutterites who were named after John Hutter and identify with some of his convictions. And so this is, is very common in many ways, and at times, as I said, I think useful in just identifying convictionally where someone is at. And we can also acknowledge that throughout history, God has raised up uh, leaders and teachers who have been instrumental in helping to shape the, the Christian church and uh, giving 
clarity, understanding into the, the teaching of the scriptures and uh, been a way for God to advance his kingdom. And these men and women are, are not without error at times, not without sin at times, and we understand that they in and of themselves are not uh, inerrant, but as they teach the scriptures, they can also become instruments through which God brings understanding. So who is John Calvin? You know, obviously Calvinism comes from also a man's name, and this man, John Calvin, lived during the 1500s, and uh, his time of teaching happened uh, in in kind of the wake of the Protestant Reformation, um, in, in, in many ways kind of exploded under the teaching of, of Martin Luther, and we could... Um, you know, there's, there's plenty of studies about the, the fascinating history leading up to that point. But John Calvin, something unique about him is, is he was another voice in the Protestant Reformation, the group of, of believers who were calling the church back, who were trying to expose some of the false teachings of Rome, who had departed from the true gospel of Jesus Christ, of salvation by faith alone, grace alone, um, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Um, the standing upon the scriptures alone was their central tenets, and uh, and yet John Calvin was one of the first um, to really give himself to writing down in detail and in, in, in systematic uh, order the the doctrines of the Christian faith, and we know that he did large works um, like the the Institutes, where he is just laying out. The, the Christian convictions um, that, that came in the wake of the Protestant Reformation, and they were used by other pastors and students and missionaries in, in, in their desire to grow in their knowledge of uh, the Christian faith. And so, in, in many ways, he um, is somewhat of a voice piece or uh, representative in that way of the, the Protestant faith and uh, the doctrines that were driving those teachers. He stands in the, the, the Reformed tradition of men like Luther, and John Knox, John Owen, Lloyd-Jones, and so on. He was not perfect by any means. He made mistakes. He sinned against God at times. He um, you know, would teach things that not everybody would necessarily agree with. And yet... I think we can also acknowledge that these were men seeking to proclaim the scriptures and to stand upon the truth of God. And he likely died uh, in the late 1500s, late you know, 1560, somewhere in there. Um, John Calvin died. And so you might ask then, well, what are the, the, the tenets of, of what is called Calvinism? Um, and you really actually points to a time after John Calvin had actually died. Uh, there was a group known as the the Remonstrants, led by Jacob Arminius, and they were were questioning some of the the key tenets doctrines of the church, and they were questioning things like, uh, are we really affected by Adam's fall? Um, do we make the decisive? act in salvation or does God 
and they were bringing these different doctrines to the pastors, and then so finally they called a synod where they came together, pastors and teachers and scholars, to to address these uh, doctrines that the remonstrants were bringing, and to talk about it, to get into the open, and then to also give a response back to them. And so there was essentially five uh, bodies of doctrine that kind of became the focal point of those discussions, looking at the fallenness of man, um, looking at uh, predestination and how does God work in our salvation, well, what did the atonement accomplish at the cross, um, how does God work in, in bringing us to salvation, and can we lose our salvation or not, and, and so these were some of the issues that were being talked about, and so the the pastors and teachers who had gathered to talk about this and respond to the remonstrance came back with what we now refer to as the TULIP doctrines, um, which is simply an acronym that uh, would help us to understand what they were. And, and even the, the acronym itself came later in history. Um, and so, as I said, John Calvin himself was not even alive when this synod took place and these responses were given to the remonstrance. Um, so this is really when someone talks to me about uh, the whole issue of Calvinism and, and, and I would tell them, well, first of all, tell me what you mean because if you're talking about all of his teachings, then no, I don't think I would identify so much as a Calvinist. But if you're talking about those specific doctrines of grace, those specific understandings of how God saves and God's work in salvation, sometimes called the tulip doctrines, then yes, I would agree those are biblical doctrines. Those are doctrines that the scriptures teach, that Christ taught, that Paul taught, and that that church fathers and, and, and women throughout history have affirmed them as gospel truth. And so at, at that level... I would say I'm okay to be identified as Calvinistic in those doctrines. So, five doctrines specifically, and um, over the next five weeks, I hope to kind of take one of them per week and look at it in light of the scripture, try to unpack it a bit, and then maybe at the end we could even have a little bit of time for some questions. If, if you're you know, struggling with something or wanting some further clarification, I can do my best, or I can get you some good resources to help uh, work through it. So TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, what do they stand for? Uh, First of all, you have total depravity, um, is the T. The U is unconditional election. L, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. And the P, the perseverance of the saints. And that's just a a little way to uh, help one remember um, what the doctrines are. And in fact, when this whole synod took place and these teachers were responding to the, the, the counter doctrines that were being given, uh, John Calvin himself was long dead. Um, this, this synod happened early 1600s. John Calvin wasn't even around. He wasn't even there. And yet, over time, they became known as Calvinism because these were, the again, some of the doctrines that he was the one to put into writing to really put into a systematic way to understand. And so his name kind of got attached to it. One of my favorite quotes is by Charles Spurgeon, who simply said, Calvinism is just a nickname for gospel. And uh, that will get, you know, some people upset. But 
in all honesty, that's how I see it. We can use whatever label we want, Reformed theology, Calvinism, gospel, truth, biblical doctrine. To me, those are synonymous when talking about these things. So this morning, my hope and prayer is just to look at this issue of total depravity. And what does it mean? What, what does the scripture say about it? Um, we see the depravity of man begin in the garden. And I won't, we won't flip back there. I know you're familiar with the Genesis account. Um, but this is really where you have to go to understand how this all began to unfold. Adam and Eve created in perfection, created in perfect harmony with God, given but one command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they were also given the promise that if they eat, they will die. If they obey, they will live. And so this is sometimes referred to as the covenant of life um, because it was a covenant in which if Adam and Eve kept it, if they obeyed and did not eat of that forbidden tree, they would be given life, eternal life, uh, as it would seem, by God. And they would walk in perfect harmony with God and, and creation. But as you know, as the Genesis account unfolds, Satan comes in um, as a serpent and he deceives the woman, convincing her that it would actually be a good idea to eat the fruit, that it actually would promote her as a creature to become more godlike. And uh, so she eats and she gives to her husband and eats and he eats. And we see the immediate effects of their sin, of their rebellion against God. They begin scrambling for something to cover their nakedness, their shame. They begin uh, blaming one another. They run and hide from God instead of running to God as they would have done in the past. And the effects of sin begin manifesting themselves early there in the garden. And uh, they would have to then watch um, as God removes them from this garden and they are kicked out into the wilderness. And their own children then, um, as we see, are also affected by this fall, by this, uh, this sinful nature that their son Cain would murder their son Abel. And they would see death come upon creation. And um, as you know, by Genesis chapter 6, the world is so corrupt, so perverted, so wicked that God goes through a series of decreating through a flood, destroying everything and, and all of the animals and all of creation except for what he had preserved in the ark through Noah. And so this is what has happened to humanity. And, and one of the ways to understand this doctrine of sin, um, original sin, is Total depravity. What does it mean? Um, this is what it's talking about. This condition that mankind is in. What condition are we born into? Um, for centuries, the church has answered, we are born into a state of total depravity, of death. We are born into spiritual darkness because of Adam and because of our own willfulness to sin. I've used the example before. Uh, there's probably a better one out there. But um, when we try to understand the uh, sinful nature that we've inherited from Adam, I've used the example of, of trying to help my wife do dishes, and uh, which doesn't happen very often these days. Um, I just say because our sink is too short is my excuse. But sometimes you run the dishwater and it's hot and you have the soap in there. Um, but if you make the mistake of washing the greasy pan first... 
uh, you know what happens, don't you? Is, is, is you put that greasy pan in there and the water is polluted. It's, it's contaminated by the grease. And you continue washing the plates and the cups and the forks and everything. And you're almost done. You have this big pile of nice, uh, what you thought were clean dishes. And then someone comes by to inspect and look at the plates and say, this is not clean at all. There's grease smudges all over it and chunks of bacon stuck to it. You have to drain the water and start again. And in a way... Um, that is us. We have all come from Adam. And so as, as mankind grows and as there's reproduction happening, we are all contaminated by his sin, if you, will. if you will. We are born into the darkness and the bondage that Adam and Eve led us into in Genesis 3. And so this morning we want to look at three senses or three ways in which our depravity is total. And um, three ways that we are to understand why the total depravity. What does that mean? Does that mean that we're as, as bad as we can be? Uh, no, that's not what it means. I think uh, most, like all Christians, should acknowledge there are different degrees of sin manifesting in us. You know, we're not all guilty of the same crimes as someone like, you know, Adolf Hitler or something. And as far as we see a degree of, of wickedness as sin manifests itself, we acknowledge there are different degrees of sin. But uh, yet we are all sinners. We are all guilty before a holy God. And so the first way in which our depravity or our fallenness is total is that it is true of every person. It is total in that it encompasses all of humanity. Everyone born of Adam is born into sin. And um, we see this in Romans 3. You're probably already there. In Romans 3, and Paul is talking about God's righteousness being upheld. Um, he is talking about God's uh, judgment upon the world that is does come in verse 8 and he says, why, And why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge with this sin? So he's, he's rejoicing in the grace of God despite our evil, despite our sin. And, and he says, well, I, some might say, well, then we should do good, uh, or sorry, do evil that good may come. And he says, uh, their condemnation is just. And then verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that both uh, Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And Paul is, is pulling from the Old Testament here. He's quoting from the Psalms 14, 53. He's quoting from Isaiah 15 and then Psalms 36. These are, this is not just one little isolated passage in the Old Testament that Paul is using to teach us this this doctrine of, of our depravity, of our, of our sinfulness before God, he is, is in a way pulling from large bodies of the Old Testament. And he's saying, listen, this isn't just a Jewish problem. This sin, you know, you read through the Old Testament through Ezekiel and Jeremiah and you want to, you know, shake your head and say, man, those Israelites were so sinful. How could they be so disobedient, so rebellious? And Paul is saying, this isn't just a Jewish problem. 
This is a human problem. This is a problem of Adam's race that we are all um, lost, that no one is righteous, no one understands, no one is seeking for God in and of themselves, in their own strength, in their own flesh. We are a people hopelessly lost in sin. We are born into this condition. Paul would say a little bit later in in Romans 5, uh, another passage I know you're very familiar with, but he says in Romans 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And there you have it. This depravity, this condition of sin, this condition of spiritual darkness is a problem for all of humanity. It doesn't matter your skin color. It doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account. It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter um, you know, what kind of social status you might have. You are born into sin. You are born under the wrath of God. And left to yourself, all you can do is sin. And that is the first way in which we must understand this doctrine. Um, the London, London Baptist Confession Um, says this, By this sin, speaking of Adam and Eve's fall, our first parents fell from their original righteousness in communion with God. We fell in them, and through this, death came upon all. All became dead in sin and completely defiled in all the capabilities and parts of the soul and body. And so we are not a people who have been wounded by sin. We're not a people who have been damaged by sin, but we need a little bit of, you know, self-esteem or a little bit of encouragement just to overcome that, you know, little bit of evil that's residing within us. That's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures say we are born into such a condition that the the authors of scripture use words like death, darkness, um, lost, inability. That is the understanding of lost man. One other really amazing passage in in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul parallels Adam with Christ, showing how in Adam we are are dead, we are are lost, but in Christ we become uh, a new creation. And uh, just a few verses in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 42, Paul writes, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, speaking of Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, listen to what he says, as was the man of dust, so as was Adam, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You see what Paul's saying? He says, because of your your humanness, you are tied to your father, Adam. And because of his disobedience, because of his fall, you bear his image. You are born into the flesh. You are born into this state of rebellion. 
This is why we don't have to teach our children to disobey. We don't have to teach our children to, to fight and to be angry. They, they, they come up with this very quickly, all on their own. This is just within them. Uh, could you imagine the reverse if, if your child was just born with this desire to please you and to walk in obedience and to love their siblings, right? I mean, I think we would probably all have about 30 children and, uh, and just loving life. But um, no, children are a blessing from God. I want to affirm that. But we see this manifest very young. And, uh, and this is where it comes from. So the first way our depravity is total is that it impacts all of humanity. No one is exempt from this condition except for the one man who was born not of Adam, was born not of man, but was conceived by who? A virgin, Mary, conceived by the Spirit. Adam, uh, Adam's race in that sense was broken by Christ and he becomes then a new Adam. This is a sobering reality. This is not a message that our culture wants to hear. They want to turn every uh, sin, every crime into a disease. You know, if I have to hear that, uh, that some of these, you know, the, these uh, sins are diseases, again, you, just, you want to start pulling your hair out. How can you help somebody understand their own condition if they are told all the day long that they have a disease and that the correction is going to be in medication and that the medication will bring about the freedom and liberty that they want. Somebody needs to speak the hard truth to them and say, no, you're born into a condition of sin. You're actually a slave to it. You are so ensnared in your darkness that you can't even see it. Well, it's not, it's not a comforting word. It's not something that's going to make you feel well. But like a good doctor being honest with the patient about the sickness so that they can pursue the proper cure, so should we Christians be honest with our uh, fellow man about the condition in which they are born and the only answer through the Lord Jesus Christ. This doctrine also highlights the goodness and power and glory of God in salvation. God in salvation is not rescuing a people who are a little bit bad, but, you know, overall good people. Um, people who, who really want to do well, but they just miss a bit of the, you know, the tools and the experience to really, to, you know, to, to really walk in obedience. And, and God, seeing our goodness, seeing how worthy we are, comes and, and rescues us and gives us that little extra knowledge. That's not, that's not what's happening in the gospel. God looks at a people who are completely ensnared in their sin, who, who love their sin, who cling to darkness. And God looks upon a people that deserve his wrath and deserve the, the full expression of his anger towards our sin. And he pours out love towards us. That is the, the, the wonder, the amazingness of grace is how undeserving we are. I mean, you could imagine how the angels in heaven must have just been baffled. That Christ would descend to this race of men who had, who had spurned God, who had, who had created their own images to worship. And yet he extends to them mercy and grace. Um, the angels do nothing of that. When, when they rebelled, they, they were removed from the presence of God. They were cast into darkness. There is no repentance for the fallen angels who followed Lucifer in his rebellion. But to Adam's race, God has offered forgiveness. This is amazing. And this is what 
Paul would, would marvel at in Romans 5, 6. He says, you know, somebody might die for a good person, maybe, like just possibly. If someone's really good and, you know, someone might look at that and say, yeah, I'll lay down my life for them. But the beauty of the gospel is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Paul says in Romans 5, 8. We were saved while we were enemies. In, in that moment of rebellion and, 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 and shaking our fist at God and, and cursing his name, in that moment, Christ reconciles us to the Father, Paul says in verse 10, while we were his enemies. The amazing grace of God is seen as we understand our depravity, then it reaches to all of us. And so the second way in which we need to understand our depravity being total is that it has rendered us totally unable to respond to God. As I've already said, it is a total death. It is an effect that, that corrupts every part of our being, as the catechism says. You know, we um, sometimes try to work on that. And I'm going to try to get a few of those in. Uh, they're so helpful. We've been using the uh, shorter catechism, which just little questions for kids. Who made you? God. Uh, why did God make you for his own glory? And we just ask the kids these questions and uh, we use it as part of our school curriculum, which is pretty awesome. Uh, and, and it's just a way to help them understand some of these doctrines. And one of the questions we ask them, and every time they answer this one, it's just like, wow, you know, they, they, mean, they don't realize what you ask them. How sinful are you? And the answer is, I am corrupt in every part of my being. That's the answer. That's what the Bible says. And that is the second way in which our depravity is total. It is a corruption that has affected every part of our being. We have no little light naturally in there shining out in the darkness. We are completely lost. We are, we are completely broken. Um, as I already said, the, the, the authors of the New Testament, especially Paul, um, when he talks about our, our state as lost man, he uses strong language. It is not the type of... You know, it's not that we have a broken bone spiritually or that we, you know, suffered a, a bad wound spiritually. Um, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were dead. You were lifeless. You were unresponsive. There was no little murmur of a heartbeat left. There was no brain activity happening spiritually. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And he says the same thing in Colossians 2.13. Our depravity is total in that it has completely rendered us unable to respond to God. Um, you know, I, this week... Well, my first week working as a plumber, which has been very interesting, but, but good in many ways. And I had a lesson on soldering on Friday, trying to help hook up a boiler. And uh, one thing I've learned about soldering, talking to the, the third year guy I'm working with, is that the heat is crucial. I mean, you have to have it clean and you have to have that flux on the pipe to make sure that it's going to bond. But if you do not get it hot enough, if you do not have the proper heat... There is no point in trying to solder the pipe. And in many ways, as a people, left to ourselves, to think that we could, even, even as we sang, not in us, to think we could somehow earn our justification, to think we could somehow please God on our own strength, 
while in this sinful condition would be like trying to solder without heat. It would be like trying to, to, to get this solder to get to a molten state, to, to go into the pipe, to bond it together with no heat. It is impossible. You cannot do it. The heat is absolutely essential. And so we as a people, spiritually, cannot even so much as search for God on our own strength. We are unresponsive. Um, Maybe you've heard of the illustration that salvation is like, you know, Jesus is in a boat going across the lake and we're out there drowning. And, uh, and so he throws out the life preserver, but we have to choose to grab onto that life preserver and, and be pulled into the gospel ship, you know, as the old song goes. But in reality, the picture of the New Testament isn't so much that we're trying to keep our head above water, but is that we're actually laying dead on the bottom of the lake. And we're decomposing. That's the picture. And that Christ must do something to us if we are to respond to him at all. It's not flattering, um, but it's the truth of the scriptures, I am convinced. In 1 Corinthians 2, 14, we see this teaching of our inability, our total uh, helplessness before God, spiritually speaking, left in our sinful condition, 1 Corinthians 2. This is another great passage to, to uh, have before you as you try to understand, uh, even, in, even in evangelism or with your lost family members, what am I dealing with here? Who, what, what state is this person in? How do I, how do I break into the, the, the darkness that they're in? You have to understand the condition and what takes place in salvation. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul writes, the natural person, and this is how we all start. Remember, we all start born of Adam. We bear his image, the man of dust. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the natural person, Paul says, doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness. They're, they're things to laugh at. They're something to mock. We can't even understand them. They, they, they just don't make any sense. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. You, you must have the Spirit of God to understand the things of God, the words of God. And Paul goes on and says in verse 15, The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. If you have been born again, if you have been indwelt by the Spirit of God, then you begin to discern and understand spiritual things because God is at work in you. Um, so our depravity is total in that it reaches all humanity. It is total in that it has rendered us completely helpless and able to respond to God. And this should cause us to abandon all attempts to use carnal or fleshly means to draw men. You don't try and lure a dead man to safety. It won't work. You know? If someone is already unconscious in the burning building and they're, they're dead, they're, the, 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 you know, the, the, maybe the EMT or uh, EMT, I think, is the one that has said, no, they're dead. Like, there's no heartbeat, there's, there's nothing. You, you can't lure them out with anything. What must you do? Well, then you must abandon the arm of the flesh and you must pray to the one who can raise the dead. 
You must plead with the God who has the power to bring life where there is none. That is what you must do. And you must use the means that that God has given to raise the dead, which is the gospel. The gospel is the means that God raises the dead to life. It is not anything that I do. It's no convincing word that I might say. It's, it's no you know, sense of humor or, or words of flattery that might somehow lure the person into the kingdom of light. No, it is only as we simply share the message, the means of salvation, that Christ has come in the flesh, that he has lived the perfect life that we could not. He has offered himself, as we sang on the cross, to atone for sin, to pay for sin, For anyone who will call upon him. And he was buried, but he did not stay in the grave. He was on the third day raised again to victory and now is seated at the right hand on high. As As we say the gospel, as we share this news, it is the means through which God then goes to these corpses and raises them to life. It is amazing. It is beautiful, even as we consider the fact that we're here with faith in our hearts this morning. This wasn't given to me by my dad or my mom. This wasn't because I had, you know, uh, children's Bible stories read to me as a kid. This is, this is only due to the fact that a sovereign God has been pleased to give grace to a sinner who did not deserve it. And that is why it is important we understand the condition of lost man, that our Depravity is total because it is completely affecting every part of our being. Um, This really puts the beauty and wonder back into salvation, does it not? Sadly, I think for many Christians today, conversion and salvation is really not that much different than, you know, making a big purchase, choosing who to marry, uh, deciding to make a career change. I mean, these are just big, important decisions that we make, right? And, and we have to do it. And, and it's always exciting when, you know, someone, hey, I'm getting married. Or, hey, you know, I'm starting this new job and we're happy for them. And I think that's a good decision. And, and, uh, and sadly, I think that's what oftentimes conversion is reduced down to. Just a good decision that someone made. Just a wise choice that, that they thought it through and they waited. And, yeah, I think I'm going to be a Christian. I think, I think I'm going to go for it. And, and that's all that that's all that's conversion is. But when you understand that when somebody goes from death to life, when somebody who once cursed God begins professing his name, that what you have witnessed is not a good decision, but a resurrection. You have witnessed the dead coming to life. That is why we must not tiptoe around some of these issues. Yes, it's offensive, but oh my goodness, the beauty of the gospel. That you are a people who have been raised to life by the power of God through the gospel. You are, you are a new people, not after Adam, our former father, but after Christ, the new Adam, now bearing his image, a, an army of light standing in a world of darkness, raised to the glory of Christ. That is what the church is. And it only makes sense if you understand our beginning condition. It is truly remarkable. This is why Paul, in trying to explain the gospel, would suddenly just burst out in song and and a hymn of praise to God as he's overwhelmed with, with what God has done. And we should be the same. Let us not treat it as just another important decision as much as it is. 
but it is first and foremost a miraculous working of God in our hearts. So thirdly, then, and finally, we'll close with our depravity is total in that it affects everything that we do. So it affects everything that we are. It is a a complete death. But then also everything that we do is flowing from that depravity. And as we will see, apart from God is actually just sin upon sin upon sin. Um, This may be one of the most difficult things to understand because we live in such a a nice little feel-good culture that that wants to praise the person who, you know, rescued the little ducklings crossing the road and think, oh, what a wonderful thing to do. That is just so nice that they would do that. What a good person, uh, you know. And, and I was even watching some of the footage from the hurricane and stuff. And, and as we continue to um, <clears throat> go into fall, we need to pray for those who are suffering the loss of homes. And, and uh, yes, there were some guys that were going from door to door checking on people. And he made the comment, he's like, oh, I'm just being a good Samaritan, you know. And, uh, and I thought about that statement. We looked at the Good Samaritan a few uh, months ago. Um, the whole point of the Good Samaritan was Jesus was exposing a self-righteous man, showing him you actually can't fulfill the law, love your neighbor. It's, you can't do it. It's impossible. You fall short. You cannot walk in the standard that God requires of loving neighbor. And yet we think ourselves to be such Good Samaritans. But when you realize that we are born in a state of sin and that we are born dead in our trespasses, that everything we do from that state is an offense to God. It is sin. Um, Theologians talk about our moral inability. And this is the idea that, that morally speaking, we cannot do good. We cannot please God. Um, as the Old Testament states that even our, our best days, our, our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. We are totally um, corrupted in every part of our being. And this corruption taints everything that we do from that state. This is what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3. You remember him coming to Jesus seeking to know more about when the kingdom would come. Where is it? Uh, he, he discerned that Jesus was a man from God of the signs he did and the, the words that he said. And, and in trying to get his head around what Jesus was talking about, uh, being born again, Jesus makes this statement to him in John 3, 5. Um, he tells Nicodemus that the flesh, uh, I'll just read it so I don't misquote it to you. Um, He said in verse, uh, well, 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so Jesus telling Nicodemus, listen, everything that comes from the flesh, everything that flows out of that condition in which we're born of of death is flesh. It, It doesn't produce life. The flesh can't produce spiritual life, nor can the spirit produce fleshly Realities. This is exactly what Paul tells the church at Galatia in, in Galatians 5, that, that walk in the Spirit and you will not satisfy the deeds of the flesh. 
The, 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 the way in which we live out our Christian living is not by rule keeping. It's not by making big lists and saying you can do this and you can't do that. And you can, you, can, you can drink this, but you can't drink that. And you can wear that, but not this. And drive that, but not this. That's not how we live out the Christian life. We, we live out the Christian life by walking in the Spirit, by abiding in Christ, is being in His Word, being in fellowship with one another, that the Spirit of God might be daily filling us afresh that we would walk in the fruitfulness of the Spirit. But if we abide in the flesh, Jesus says, then we will continually give birth to things of the flesh. And so everything that a person does in their natural state is an offense to God. You cannot please God in this condition. Paul states this plainly in Romans fourteen twenty three, and I know we're jumping around a lot this morning, but such as the nature of a more topical message today. Romans 14.23, listen to what Paul says. This is shocking when you consider the, the impact of it. 14 verse 23, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. Talking about, can we eat food sacrificed to idols? Can we not? If you're doubting, Paul says, don't do it. Um, because if you're doubting, then you're not, you're not doing it in faith. And then he makes the statement in uh, Romans 14, 23. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so it doesn't matter in this sense how good someone's actions might appear on the human level. You know, we have the, the human level in which we live and, and we, we see, and we might see someone, you know, rescue the little duckling from the road and think, well, that was nice. I mean, there is a sense in which that was a good thing to do. But when we talk about the plane in which God dwells and lives and where his, perf- his perfect holiness is manifest, at that level, that it wasn't good because the person's motive might have been, oh, well, you know, I really like this, this, uh, this girl that works across the road. I think if I go and get this duck, she might see me and then she might like me. You know what I mean? Like the motives itself, we don't know. It, it could have been a bad motive. It could have been, it could have been that the person worships ducks and, and, and they, they, you know, we just don't know. Like they could have thought this, you know, I mean, my brother-in-law, Michael in India said, you know, you don't, you don't go to a Burger King and find beef. Because they worship cattle. Like it's, it's a sacred animal. Uh, you, you can't, you, you get chicken burgers, you know. You don't get any beef. And, uh, and, and so this is, you know, we, we can't discern the heart of man. Even though their action might look to be good. In reality, Paul says, if it's not coming from faith. If it's not done with a desire to honor God and to please God. And, and out of gratitude for what he has done in Christ. Then ultimately, it is sin. And um, again, there's all kinds of. Technical discussions, you know, we, we, we know that to kill someone is, is, is far worse than to, uh, you know, help someone across the road. We, we acknowledge as image bearers of God who have the law of God written on our heart, who, who um, even our own conscience testifies that we bear the image of our God. And, and sometimes you see that image of God, though it be marred by sin, still manifesting itself. And, and there's a sense in which we can give God thanks for that. But ultimately, when it comes to standing before God on Judgment Day, it will not give us any merit before Him who is without sin. Um, We cannot cling 
to the flesh in any way. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. It's impossible to please God without faith. And if we are dead in our trespasses and sins, in darkness, then faith itself must come to us from God who graciously gives all things. This is exactly what Paul said in Ephesians 2. For by grace are you saved. It is not of yourselves. Right? By, by, by grace through faith is all the gift of God that no one may boast. Um, Charles Spurgeon said, The man who clings to his own righteousness is like a man who grasps a millstone to prevent himself from sinking in the flood. If you want to cling on to your goodness, to the, the, the you know, good will of man, it is like grasping a millstone to prevent yourself from sinking. And so we'll wrap it up there for now. Um, in summary, we are a people born into a state of total depravity, of complete lostness before God. After our father Adam, we, we cannot do good on our own strength. But the glorious news is that God did not abandon the human race in their condition, only to await his wrath. That even in the garden, as Adam and Eve clung to their fig branches, trying to hide their shame because of their disobedience, God would slay an animal and cover them in the skins of that animal, foreshadowing a day when Christ would lay down his life when he would take his shame upon him, take our shame upon himself, excuse me, and when our sin would be placed upon Christ and he would hang on that tree as though he was the most vile, wicked sinner that had ever lived. And there as the wrath of God is poured out upon the Son, God's wrath is satisfied and his love and grace extended to any who will repent and believe. And we are then offered to be born into a living hope, made new, transformed, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into light. That is the glorious news of the gospel. That is why we are still here upon this earth. We might think, okay, well, if that's the point, then once I'm saved, once I have been born again and I have been transferred from that kingdom, from that race of Adam, then I now stand as a part of the new humanity in Christ. Why am I still here? Do you feel that some days? Like, Lord, please just take me out of this place. Um, you know, we need to pray for, uh, I was thinking of, of Stephen, you know, working in the trades. It's like, if I have to hear one more F word, I think I'm just going to break down and cry. Like, it's just the, the, the darkness. And you think, Lord, what, what am I doing in this place? But it's there that we must stand firm. We must be light. We must bring the truth, the only truth that offers anybody deliverance and peace with God. And so I urge you this morning, if you have not called upon Christ, if you've not flown to Christ for grace and mercy, then do that. And um, the sign of entering into that state of newness in Christ is to be baptized, to put on the sign of baptism. 
and identify yourself as no longer with Adam's race. I, I want to be washed of Adam. I want to be buried in Adam. I don't want anything to do with that heritage. I want to be raised up in Christ in the newness of his grace. And so I encourage you to do that.